Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. What we're really going to focus on here today are the issues that are going to be most relevant to you graduating um, in, uh, from Stanford um, and uh, also starting up uh, a, a startup company in the Silicon Valley and the type of issues that you're going to face. And you'll find that the issues that you face as an entrepreneur starting a small company are much different than you're going to face joining a big company. So if, you're, if you find a job with Google, you're probably not going to have very many immigration issues. Um, they have a very good staff there, and, and uh, uh, the immigration service really isn't looking to Google to, you know, to, to scrutinize those cases very much. But as, a, as, as an entrepreneur, unfortunately, it can often be very difficult in your situation, um, someone who's graduating in F1's uh, status, to, uh, to, to secure work authorization after your uh, one year of OPT. So that's, that's sort of the focus, but we're also going to sort of just talk about some of the immigration basics so you have a, an idea. Some of you might already know this, but, but just some of the, the, the language that you need to know to understand how this process works. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about initial concerns for startups and entrepreneurs. We'll talk about temporary visas, and those are things that are going to be uh, relevant to you uh, once you graduate. Those are H-1Bs and the TNs and, and other non-immigrant visas that will allow you to start working um, once your OPT expires. Um, and we'll also talk a little bit about the interplay between your F1 OPT and changing status to a, a, a longer-term work-authorized status like the H1B. And then we'll sp uh, spend very, very little time talking about green cards because that's probably not something that's uh, uh, that relevant to you right now. Um, but just to give you a, a brief overview so you know what that's about and, and what options are available to people like you who are starting up companies um, in the United States. And then finally, just a, a, a minute or two on proposed legislation to help entrepreneurs and startups. You might have heard of the, the, the so-called Startup Visa Act that was last year that unfortunately didn't go anywhere, but we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, what might be on the horizon for proposed legislation um, in the future. Okay, so just going to go through some basic terminology so you understand this, and not only when we go through the rest of the presentation, but when you're talking to potential employers or the you know, Foreign Studies Office here, you know what this all means. A non-immigrant is someone who's a foreign national coming to the United States for a temporary purpose. So if you're all in F1 student status, you're a non-immigrant. You're coming here temporarily for the purposes of going to Stanford and learning. Um, an immigrant is someone that's coming to the United States for permanent purposes. So that's someone who's going, planning on living here permanently. And traditionally, the non-immigrants and the immigrants were two very separate things, and, and uh, you couldn't be a non-immigrant with the intention of becoming an immigrant, of uh, living here permanently. So you had to show, and, and many of you might have had to show this when you applied for your F-1, your intention to go back to your home country. You know, proof that you have ties in your home country, that, you know, your, your, your family's going to be missing you. Um, so that, that's traditionally how it works. And it still works for most visa classification. It works that way for the F-1. However, some non-immigrant visa classifications are what we call dual intent classifications. And those include the H-1B and the L-1. Um, and what that means is, is that you can come on an F-1. You still, when you apply for the F-1, you have to show your intention of, of coming here temporarily. But once you're here you can change to H-1B and L-1 status, and once you're in H-1B and L-1 status, you're, it's fine for your intention to, to, to be to live here permanently. Um, so you don't face those restrictions. When you go to apply for a visa, an H-1B visa, they're not going to say, oh, are you planning on going home to, to Germany? Um, they don't care. 
with the H1 or the L1. So it's a good classification to be in. Yes? Uh, the dual intent has been, you know, a de facto rule for a very long time. Uh, before I started practicing immigration law, it was actually added to the, the regulations and the statute, I believe, in 2000 or 1999 or 2000. So it's been around for a long time. But again, that only applies to H-1B and L-1 and to a lesser extent E-1, E-2, and L-1, um, which your classifications will touch on. Um, finally, lawful permanent resident green card holder. This is someone who's been granted permanent residency. They're living here permanently. They, they have no restrictions on where they work, what they do. They can do whatever they want, so long as it's legal. Um, okay, so uh, non-immigrant visa. And this is an important distinction between a non-immigrant visa and a rival departure record. Most of you, unless you're from Canada, are going to have an F-1 visa with your picture on it in your passport. Um, that's a non-immigrant visa. It's issued by the consular service abroad, either a consulate or an embassy abroad. Um, that allows you to enter the country. The arrival departure record is what Customs and Border Protection gives you at the port of entry when you enter the country. The little white piece of paper, and it has a handwritten expiration date. Sometimes it's computer generated. Um, once you're here, what's relevant is the arrival departure record. That's what determines how long you can stay here. Um, for F1s, that period is D slash S. They don't have an expiration date, which means that as long as you're a student, as long as you're enrolled in school, and you have an I-20 that covers your period of, uh, of studies, you're in valid status. But it's important to, to know these because sometimes people will say, oh, my non-immigrant, my visa is expiring, the, the thing in their passport with a picture on it. That doesn't matter once you're here. Maybe it's issued for two months. Once you're here, what controls your period of authorized stay is the I-94. So when you switch to H-1B or L-1 or whatever you switch to, that's going to have an expiration date on it. And that expiration date is very important. If you stay beyond that, then you can, you know, find yourself in all sorts of trouble. Um, but as an F-1 student, it's just the D slash S, which means that that's, you, can, you can stay here so long as you're, you're you know, enrolled in school and your I-20 covers your, your, your studies. Do you have a question or? Okay. Uh, just as J-1B test, what do we do the same rules? D-S, yes, D slash S. Yeah, we can talk about that later, maybe in the after session. Are, are there many people here on a J-1? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very similar. It's the D slash S and, you know, uh, duration of status. Uh, just, just to make sure I understood this right. So there's a date in, this, in the visa, and that date is irrelevant. Once you enter the country... Right. Yeah. There's it's not any four date and instead of a date it says D slash S and that refers to another document and that actually determines how long. That's a good way to put it, yeah. I mean it's it, it's complicated but the uh, the you know I bring this up mainly because when you do switch to a work authorized status you're going to have an expiration date. And it's very important to keep an eye on that um, because if you overstay that um, then it's a, then it's a problem. Um, but, yeah, as an F-1 or a J-1, you have the duration of status. Yeah, if you stay beyond the I-20, which is issued for the F-1, or the IAP-66, which is issued for the, uh, um, the, 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 uh, or the DS-2019, which is issued for the J-1, that's also an issue, but it's not as big of an issue. Um, next, next thing I want to mention is petition-based non-immigrant classification. And what that is is uh, uh, usually work-authorized classifications which require uh, an employer, usually an employer, to file a petition with the Immigration Service, get that petition approved before you can get 
that non-immigrant status. So you're, most of you are in F1 status. That's not a petition-based non-immigrant classification. You get an I-20 from the school, says that, yeah, you're accepted here. They're, they're going to have you go to school. You take that I-20, you apply for an F-1 visa at the consulate. Um, with a petition-based classification, we have to go to the immigration service in the United States, get their approval on a piece of paper, and then take that and get the visa. Um, and, 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 and that's important because the immigration service uh, is not always the easiest government agency to deal with. Um, and I'm going to be careful what I say because I know I'm being videotaped, but uh, um, it's much different when you're dealing with Stanford and they're issuing I-20 and then you're going to the consulate abroad and they just say, oh, you're going to Stanford. That's great. Here you go. You know, so um, that, those are just some basic concepts. The next thing that we're going to talk about um, are initial concerns for startups. And, and this is really geared to those of you who are thinking about starting up a company when you graduate. You're on F1 OPT status or J1 status and you want to start up uh, a company here as one of the founders or one of the initial employees even or maybe joining a startup maybe there's a startup that's already joined that has five or six employees and you're thinking about joining that company as opposed to Google these are important considerations the USCIS the immigration service has a fraud profile that targets smaller and newly formed companies and this is not this is this is actually we we've seen the fraud profile so it's not something, it's not a conspiracy theory. They've, they accidentally leaked it. Um, it's not on WikiLeaks yet, but it was uh, released to someone on, uh, to a lawyer inadvertently. So we've all seen a copy of it. Um, and these are some of the things that matter to the USCIS. Size matters. Um, must have commercially zoned premise. A commercial lease is best. So you want to start up a company out of your apartment, you want to get an H-1B, that's going to be a problem. Um, the, the, the whole idea of Silicon Valley and, and you know, garage startups doesn't work if you're on an F1 and you're switching to an H1B. Um, must have money to pay salaries. Uh, you know, there's, there's prevailing wage requirements with the H1B, which we'll talk about. Um, and uh, even for other non-classifications, they want to see that you've got money in the bank that's going to pay the salary that's indicated on the H1B petition. So sometimes people come to me and say, we've got 50000 We want to start a company, and, and my salary is going to be 100000 it's hard to do that. They're going to ask, how do you, how, where are you going to get the rest of the money to pay the salary? Um, must have working dedicated phone number. Uh, this is less of a concern. We haven't seen it as much. But, you know, sometimes people, they have their cell phone, and, you know, they, they, we, they want us to put that on the petition, and the USCIS is going to call, and they're going to say, hey, you know, I mean, they want to hear someone's, this is Acme, Inc., or whatever. Um, must comply with all local, state, and federal ordinances, obviously. Um, and this sometimes causes confusion. You start up a company here in Palo Alto, it doesn't require a business license in Palo Alto, but they're going to ask for that anyway. These are the kinds of things that they're looking for. Um, if you have existing employees, they're going to want to see payroll records. So maybe you're going to say, okay, we got three people working for us. Maybe they're all working for equity. Um, but if you don't have the payroll records, you, you can't really say that you got three employees. They're going to want to see that they're, you know, they're, they're regular paid employees with taxes withheld. Um, and it's also helpful to have insurance, receipts for services, equipment, et cetera. Basically what they're looking for is a lot of documentation to show that it's an actual business in sort of the, you know, the, the, uh, the view that the USCIS sees businesses. They don't see them as startups working out of garages. They see them as big organizations. Most of the petitions they see are from companies like IBM and Google. So... You know, they, they want to see all these little indicators. <clears throat> sure. Does it matter where the money comes from, whether it's uh, raised capital or 
Um, so long as it's legal, it's fine. Um, so, so yeah, VC funding is, is obviously is the way. That, I mean, usually when we're doing a startup for an H-1B, there's no revenue. So you know, we have to put on the form, we say, you know, 20 million, hopefully, in, in VC funding. Usually it's somewhat less than that. But that's the idea. Uh, we'll talk. We'll, we can address that question afterwards. That's a little bit more tricky and complicated. Um, <clears throat> the newness of the company matters to USAS as well. It is generally difficult for newly formed companies to sponsor employees for petition-based work authorization because they don't have quarterly wage statements, again, payroll records, tax returns, proven revenue, um, a track record of doing business, public records, and information on the web. Um, one of the things that the USCIS has started doing recently is they've started using Dun & Bradstreet, which is a, a company that you might have heard of that tracks data about companies to verify the existence of companies, um, which is really a bad idea because Dun & Bradstreet, frankly, is not always up to date. In fact, I went to a stakeholders meeting in D.C. Um, <clears throat> talking about this new pilot program of using Dun & Bradstreet data, and the Dun & Bradstreet data people that were there said, you know, yeah, the data is usually up to date. And I had my paralegal um, look up our data, and it was three or four years out of date. So, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it, it's just another uh, thing that, that indicates how difficult it is for smaller companies. The Dun & Bradstreet data for Google is probably pretty close to up to date. It's not going to be for a startup company, or they might not even be in Dun & Bradstreet. So, um, in terms of what needs to be done with this, if you're starting up a company, you're probably going to have to take all these steps that you wouldn't otherwise have to do. Uh, go to Dun & Bradstreet, get your company data in there, you know, um, start paying employees rather than just have them on equity, um, and uh, you know, get a, a commercial lease for office space. Stealth companies are problematic because there's no information on the Internet. A lot of times a startup company, as you know, is going to be in stealth mode. They don't want to tell people what they're doing. Um, if we try and file an H-1B in that situation, it, it can be difficult, particularly if the company doesn't want to release anything to, to, the, to the immigration service. There's nothing on the website, nothing to verify what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> so the way that we, we generally handle that is we have an explanation of this is a stealth company and we provide some documentation, which we say to treat confidentially um, with the immigration service, um, describing what the company's <coughs> going to do. Um, and... Owner-employee immigration sponsorship, very difficult because of the USCIS's new narrow interpretation of employment, which essentially states that sponsored employees must be controlled by others. So you want to start a company. You're going to be a co-founder. Um, let's say you're going to own 60% of the company. It's going to be very difficult to do an H-1B for that and other classifications as well, but particularly H-1B because they're going to say there's no employer-employee relationship because you, the employer, and you, the employee, are one and the same. So that's the position that they take right now, and, and that makes it very difficult. Um, and really, there's nothing you can do about that except you know, try and do something where you don't have a majority ownership. No, if, you, uh, if you're the only founder, it, it depends. I mean, there's other visa classifications. Right now, we're sort of talking about some of the, you know, the H-1B, the petition-based visa processes. Um, but there, there might be other options that we'll talk about here. And, and we'll, um, um, it, 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 but usually for most people, H-1B is uh, the only way that they have. But depending on your nationality and depending on how much money you're putting into it, there's other options. 
So now we're going to talk about some of the common non-immigrant visa classifications for, for people like you. First of all, one that you're very familiar with, F1. Um, as you know, when you graduate, you should get a year of optional practical training. Some of you might be uh, working pursuant to curricular practical training right now, um, which allows you to work while you're going to school. Um, the F1, 12 months, uh, the, OPT, the F1 OPT gives you 12 months once you graduate. Basically, you can work wherever you want, so long as you're getting paid. Um, and it's above minimum wage, I guess. Um, <clears throat> so that, that is a, I mean, that works actually very well for people that want to start a company because you have that first year where really no one's looking over your shoulder. The USCIS is not saying, well, is that really work? The only people that you have to deal with is the Stanford Foreign Studies Office, and as I understand, they're pretty you know, understanding in this. And the, they're fine with uh, students using their OP to start a company. Um, the next one is the H-1B workers and specialty occupations, and that's sort of the standard work visa, um, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, but that's, that's for anybody that's, that's working in the United States for an employer in what's called a specialty occupation, a position, uh, a, a position that requires a specific degree in a specific field. And sort of the quintessential H-1Bs are engineers, um, you know, uh, lawyers, um, those type of positions where it's easy to identify that you have to have a specific degree in a specific field. Um, the, the O-1 alien of extraordinary ability, that's for people that have risen to the very top of their field. We often do that for people that are PhDs or startup founders that have you know, started other companies, raised lots of money, made lots of money, those type of things. It's a very high standard to meet, though. Um, and the E-2 treaty investors, we'll talk more about that as well. This is something that might work for some, some of you. <clears throat> Most countries we have treaties with um, that allow for investors. I, would, I shouldn't say most countries, but you know, most people are covered by treaties with countries that we have that allow people from, uh, from these countries to come here, start a business, start an investment, an, uh, an enterprise, and get a, a, a work visa to manage that business, to run that business. Now, there are some catches to that, and we'll talk about that, but, but it is an option that, that uh, uh, it, it should be looked at in, in all cases, um, and it's something that we've done for people that have graduated from uh, business school in the past here. Um, B1 business visitor, that is, that is a, a status that allows people to come here for purposes of business that doesn't involve work, but you can use that to start a, com to, to, to start a company or look into starting a company. But you can't, once the company's up and running, you can't really uh, 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 work um, in B1 status. And then there's some other visa classifications, the TNs for Canada. Um, I don't know. If, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, just a little introduction. So, um, Other visa classifications, the TNs, which are available to Canadians and Mexicans, um, which is a work visa classification. Um, the H1B1s, which are available to Singaporeans and Chileans. Um, I don't know if anyone's from Singapore or Chile here. Um, and the E3s, uh, which are available to Australian citizens. So we'll just touch on those very briefly. So if you're not from Canada, Mexico, Chile, Singapore, Australia, then you, know, you have a harder time. <clears throat> and thinking about the different options that are available, we have to ask, what, which classification is best? And these are questions that I always ask clients with startups to determine that. Um, when does employee's OPT, if applicable, expire? <coughs> what country is the employee from? How far along is the company in setting up? How much capital has the startup raised and from what source? From what source is very important. 
So is the amount, but from what source is very important. If it comes from a VC in the United States, it will preclude possibly other options um, for investor visas. <clears throat> How much ownership interest will the employee have in the company? And, and as I mentioned, that's a relevant concern because it, it, it can be difficult to get a work uh, visa um, where the uh, employee that's being sponsored is also a majority owner. Um, on the other hand, it will open up other options, potentially, for some people. Um, what is the nature of the business and how big will the operation be? So as, as you know, I just mentioned these as sort of an introduction, as we go through the different, in more detail, to the different visa classifications, um, you'll understand why these questions are relevant. <clears throat> F1 practical training, um, as I mentioned, is issues for startups, requires employment, so must get paid. So you can't just hang out on your OPT, unfortunately. You've got to get money from somewhere. Um, and I, as I understand it, most schools, and I think Stanford as well, they're pretty flexible with that. They're not, you, know, you don't have to get paid a whole bunch of money, um, but you do need to get paid somehow. Um, <clears throat> there's two types of uh, tr practical training. Again, the optional practical training, generally granted for up to 12 months. It's usually post-completion. You can get OPT prior to graduating, but usually people wait. They save it until they, they graduate, and they take their full 12 months then. Um, must notify the school of the employer. That's very important. That's sort of a new rule a couple of years ago. Uh, so when you start working somewhere, you've got to go back to Stanford and say, hey, I'm working here, and let them know. Um, you can't have any more than 90 days of unemployment. So you can not work for a little bit of time, but if you exceed that 90 days, then you're in violation of status. And uh, also important is it has to be related to your degree program. So if you're using your OPT to work as a waiter, it might be a difficult case to make that it's related to a, your MBA program. Um, <clears throat> curricular practical training is, is essentially an internship while you're going to school. So uh, people get curricular practical training to, you know, to, to, to work at companies like you know, IBM or Google or whatever. Um, you can also use it with a startup, but it must be part of the curriculum, and it has to be specifically approved uh, by the Foreign Studies Office here. So you, you can't, they need to look at what you're doing, and they might, I'm sure they have some forms that you need to fill out, and, and uh, they need to approve it before you can do it. Ninety days total. Okay. I was actually at the Bechtel Center talking to one of the student international advisors, and they said um, the OPT has a new like self-employment clause, um, which you could either use when you're running out of unemployment or I don't think there's anything new. But I'll, um, that's something. There, there are some, there are some specific things about self-employment in the in the regulations. But we can talk about talk about that. Um, but uh, yeah, OPT you can use to. Uh, I mean, self-employment is is a. You know, you can work as an independent contractor, for example, on OPT. You get like a 1099, but you do have to be receiving compensation. So, uh, I guess it depends on what you mean by self-employment. If you're just, you know. Um, Building a house and not getting paid for it, that would... That we have to tell Stanford where we're working. And yes. And showing me the form of, like, where you go to tell them. And there's a pull-down that's, like, who's your employer? And there's, like, company, blah, blah, blah. One of the entries was self-employment. It's like, you would click this and then... Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You can do it, but, again, you, you can't... 
um, you can't just be self-employed and not making money, because that's essentially not doing anything, right? Or just doing a hobby. Um, <clears throat> The way it works is, is if you use a full year of CPT, then you're ineligible for OPT. But conceivably, you could do like six months of CPT and then still have your one year of OPT. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about the H-1B workers and specialty occupations. Again, this is the most common work visa. It's for workers in positions that would normally require at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field. Um, and again, engineers and lawyers are sort of the quintessential ones. Uh, does not require temporary intent, um, as I mentioned. Um, there's a six-year maximum time limit. So people in an H-1B status uh, can only get six years uh, total. However, if you start the green card process um, within... Uh, enough time, usually that's before the, the uh, end of your fifth year as an uh, H-1B, then you can extend your H-1B indefinitely um, while that green card process is, is going. And that's very important for some people from certain countries because there's huge backlogs for green cards. So if you're from India or China, um, the backlog could be as long as eight or nine years. And if you only get six years as an H-1B, then obviously that's going to be a problem. Um, so they changed the law in 2000 that now allows you to extend that H-1B indefinitely um, <clears throat> while you're waiting for your green card, so long as you start the green card process soon enough. And that's, that's something that's unique to the H-1B. Another important feature of the H-1B is that you can port from one employer to another um, before the petition's approved. So you're working at one company, you want to work at another company. Um, once the new company files the H-1B petition, you can start working for the new company. Um, and that's, that's, that's uh, unique to the H-1B as well. Um, with regards to the six-year time limit, does that reset or change at all if you go back to um, F-1 status? So I worked on H-1B for about four years before. No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, um, the question was in case, uh, whether the H-1B six-year limit is reset uh, by going to F-1 status. It is not. While you're in F-1 status, you don't use that six years, so you still have the balance of what you had before. Um, however, the only way that you can reset it is being physically out of the United States for one year. But the, the remaining Continuous year. Yeah, you still have the balance. Can you speak to H-4 visas for the spouses of H-1Bs? Specifically, if someone um, works in a startup, doesn't take cat, doesn't take any compensation, but has an equity position in it? Is that okay for an H-4 visa? I think we should save that for after because that's kind of a complicated and I'd rather my answer not be on film. No, just kidding. Um, uh, <clears throat> Every time you file a new H-1B petition with a new employer, it's all the same fees, all the same paperwork. There are some advantages, like the portability, um, so you can port from one employer to the other. You don't have to wait for it to be approved, uh, but it's the same paperwork. So sometimes people say, oh, I'm, it's just an H-1B transfer. Um, there's no real such thing as an H-1B transfer. It's always a new petition. How much are the fees? The government fees? Well, it depends on the attorney's fees, and the, the government... Um, well, it also depends on the size of the company and whether you want premium processing. And there's a lot of things, but generally, it's going to be for most uh, four to five thousand dollars. So, 
Yeah. We, we file a petition, um, and then they start working for us because they can as soon as they file the petition. Yeah. And then they get the petition doesn't go through. Well, that's why with a startup, depending on the position and depending on how big the company is, your immigration attorney will hopefully tell you that let's wait till it's approved rather than have him quit um, because if it does get denied, then he's, he's, uh, he's, a, he's in, a, in a hard situation. Um, so I always tell him, I say, if, I, if I think it's clearly going to be approved, then I'll say, yeah, go ahead and ha- um, have him change. But if it's, a, if it's one of those cases that I think the USCIS might give us a hard time on, I say, well, you know, we file with premium processing. It's only going to take a couple weeks anyway, so um, let's just wait till then. So um, challenges for startups and entrepreneurs in the H-1B, again, the fraud profile, which is specifically for the H-1B, um, they're looking at the size of the company. Um, and and when, uh, when the USCIS is adjudicating small company uh, H-1Bs, they interpret specialty occupation much more narrowly than they do for large companies. And there are certain kinds of positions, and unfortunately business positions, which they're going to scrutinize very, very closely. Um, so if you have a startup company with five or six people, and let's say it's got a million dollars in VC funding, and you're hiring a software engineer with a degree in computer science to work for you, eh, probably not going to have a problem with that. But if you're hiring a business systems analyst um, or you know, a, a director of marketing, much more likely that you're going to have a problem with that. It's not to say you can't do it, and you know, the immigration service has gotten a little bit better over the last year, um, but it is a more problematic case. So that's one of those cases, if it were a portability case, we might say, let's just wait for it to be approved just to play it safe. <clears throat> Well, they look at both, but usually the degree is not the problem. I mean, you know, they're, they're, uh, uh, you know if someone has a degree in engineering or they have a, uh, an MBA, they're not going to say, well, is that really an MBA? I mean, I heard Stanford's a good school, but uh, um, they're really looking at does the position. And, and the things that they look at is like, do you really, you've got five people. Why do you need a director of marketing? So they sort of impose their business judgment in the, you know, process of adjudicating your H-1B. <clears throat> Um, they, that, that's a complicated question. Um, there's, there's a certain portion of the government filing fees that the employee cannot pay by law. Um, however, there are reasons that the employee should not pay other portions of it, depending on how much the person is making relative to other employees at the company. And I know that's not a very clear answer, but just in the interest of time, we can take that up in the, the after session, if you'd like. Yeah, there is, a, there is an annual cap for H-1Bs, and I think we get to that next uh, slide. So I'll just wait to hold, talk about that. Um, okay, so I'm just, uh, all right. Tactically, what do you suggest when we come out of school and we're going to go into a start, go down the OPT route for a year and then go to H-1B or go straight? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you can, you know, one, 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 one tactic or strategy um, not sure which, is to, you know, try to file an H-1B if it's, you know, you get to give yourself multiple bites at the apple. Um, so sometimes people do that. The company's kind of small now. Why don't we try it now? I mean, it costs money, obviously, and you're going to lose all that money if it gets denied. And then if it doesn't work out, you still have your OPT. Um, I mean, there's some, there's some issues with that. There's some logistical issues with that. Um, but sometimes that makes sense. Um, because one of the things, and we'll talk about with this, this with a cap, is if the economy starts to really start moving again, um, it might be very difficult to get an H-1B. 
Now, I think everybody here is graduating with MBA, so you get a special set aside. Your chances of getting one are, are better. Again, I'm sort of jumping the gun and talking about the cap. But, you know, what happened in 2007 is that uh, even people with masters, only 90% of them got H-1Bs. You had to file on one day. So if you were an unlucky one in 10, your case was, was unlucky and you didn't get picked in the lottery. And, and uh, so sometimes it makes sense to say, okay, I got the year of OPT, but let's try filing now just in case the economy is going to get really, really good next year and I'm not going to have a chance in the lottery. Again, I'm sorry, I'm sort of jumping the gun on talking about the cap. Um, so the, uh, the H-1B is problematic, as I mentioned, for executives and managers because they're not traditionally specialty occupations. Again, it doesn't mean that you can't make it happen, but it's more difficult and the, ch and the risk of a denial is higher. What we tend to do is, is if we're doing someone with a master's degree, an MBA, and it's sort of a technical position and they have an undergraduate technical degree, we'll sort of pin the position on that because that's more of a clear specialty occupation. So if, if I get an H1B and I'm doing like computer science or research or anything, and then like after I get here I get promoted to CEO, uh, that's a straight rule? And, I mean, if you get promoted to CEO, then we have to file an amendment of your H1B is normally what we would do. Um, and if we were to do that CEO, we'd still try and pin it on your, your technical background. So this isn't just a CEO like the CEO of, you know, U-Haul. It requires someone with a technical background. I don't know why U-Haul came to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, and again, as, as we mentioned, it's increasingly difficult where the sponsored H-1B employee has ownership interest in the company. If you have 25%, 30%, and we have all the indices of an employment relationship, an employment agreement, offer letter, all that stuff, pay stubs, it's, it's, it's not likely going to be a problem. But if you own 50% or more, then it could be a problem. Um, and uh, finally, the downsides of the H-1B, um, it's relatively expensive in terms of government filing fees. As I mentioned, it's between, usually between four dollars and $5,000 with premium processing, <clears throat> depending on the size of the company. Um, more downsides, annual cap. Subject to annual cap of 65,000, and of these 6,700 are reserved for Chileans and Singaporeans. Remember I said they have that special treaty status with Singapore and Chile? Well, they took those visa numbers in that treaty out of the general pot and reserved it for them. Um, and, you know, being that uh, Singapore is a small country and there's not a lot of people from Chile coming here, um, <clears throat> they don't use that whole 6,700. So what happens is, is that that unused portion gets put in the cap for the next year. And that's where we're at right now this year. So last year, I think there was only you know, a few hundred uh, H-1B1s for Chile and Singapore. And they just added those to the, or you know, uh, uh, indicated how many of those are left over for this year. So we've actually already reached the normal cap for fiscal year 2011, which is 6,500 minus 6,700. But because most of that 6,700 is left over from last year, it gets added to the pot. So we still have about three or 4,000 left for this year. No, it's fiscal year starts October 1st. Two, fiscal year 2011 started October 1st, uh, 2010. Um, so, you know, if you look at, if you look at the, the, the numbers that were released a couple weeks ago, and it shows that, you know, there's 61,000 regular H-1Bs that have been used up, so, oh, no, the cap's been reached. But it's not because we had these leftovers from Chile and Singapore of last year. Now, for all of you that are graduating with an MBA, there's 20,000 in addition to that that are set aside for people with master's degree from U.S. schools. 
um, that cap for this fiscal year has already been reached. Okay? That doesn't mean you can't get an H-1B because we haven't reached the regular cap. Um, it's just that special set-aside has been reached. Um, and what happens when there's a huge demand for H-1Bs, like there was in 2007, the regular H-1Bs would run out first. So it really meant something to have those additional 20,000 for master's degree holders. Um, but what we're seeing is there's a lot more people graduating with master's. So it's quite possible that the master's cap and the H regular H-1B cap when the economy gets good, will run out around the same time. It depends. If you've had a held H-1B status in the last six years and you still have time left, you haven't used up your whole six years, yeah, that's correct. The question was, if you've had an H-1B in the past, you, you, know, you went back to school to get an MBA, can you reactivate that H-1B without being subject to the cap? And the answer is yes, if it meets those conditions. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, like where you find the position to like switch. Switch employers? Does that use up the cap? No, it doesn't. <clears throat> no, it doesn't. Um, the, the way the cap works is if you've been counted against the cap once uh, in the last six years, you're not subject to the cap. Okay? Um, that's just a gloss, but there's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But, so essentially what I tell people is if you've, if you've held H-1B status in the past, chances are you're not subject <clears throat> to the uh, annual quota. Um, <clears throat> Another downside of the H-1B, there's a lot of employer restrictions on it. Unlike most other visa classifications, the employer has to pay the prevailing wage, um, and they have to keep very detailed records on you know, payroll and, and uh, uh, working conditions in compliance with the Department of Labor regulations. So for startups, that's particularly difficult because you, don't, you probably have not very much administrative support. Everybody's wearing multiple hats, and then you, you have to read this long instruction book that we send people that explains how to do all this stuff. Um, obviously, for a bigger company, they have a whole department and probably a person specifically um, doing that, and that's all they do. Um, but that is a downside. And, and, one of the, and, and part of the reasons that that's difficult for startups is, is that when you start a company, let's say you're going to be the CEO, and you want to take a small salary and just you know, take equity for, for most of your compensation. can't do that with the H-1B. There's a prevailing wage requirement. You have to be paid what the Department of Labor says CEO should be making um, in the area of intended employment. And that figure is very high. So when doing an H-1B for a startup, there has to be some sort of flexibility in what your role is going to be at the company. Um, if, you, if you file uh, an H-1B for a CEO, you know, $150,000, and they're not going to consider equity or bonuses. It has to be uh, salary paid at least once a month. Finally, um, no spousal work authorization for H-1B. Some other visa classifications that we'll talk about, um, there is, uh, uh, your spouse can work uh, in basically open market employment while you're here. Doesn't apply to H-1B. You know, I'm going to try and just get things moving because I think we're running a little short on time. Um, 01, Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. Again, this is for people that are really at the top of their field. So someone who's a, you know, documented achievements in, in uh, a business, startups, or technology. We often do O1s for them. People with PhDs, it's, 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 a, it's usually a pretty good choice. Um, usually if the H-1B is available as an option, we'll start there. Because even though the filing fees are less for the O1, it's a lot of preparation. It's a lot of work, and, and uh, you know, the person really has to be able to show... Uh, a, a lot of documents 
uh, demonstrating their, their extraordinary abilities. Um, so I'm just going to sort of skip through that because I, I think that's uh, less important than some of these other things. The next thing that I want to talk about is the E2 treaty investor. And this applies to people from a lot of countries. We have treaties with uh, um, countries, you know, many countries, most countries in, in, in Western Europe, um, uh, many countries in Asia, um, which allow for people to come to the United States to start a business and get, visa classific uh, get a visa uh, pursuant to, to that business and running that business. But there are some important restrictions that are relevant to people like you who are going to be starting up a company and possibly seeking VC funding. Um, first of all, the enterprise has to be at least 50% owned and controlled by nationals of the treaty country. So if you're coming here and you're going to start a company and you're not going to own at least 50% of it, or you're not going to have other people from your you know, country owning 50% of it, then the E2 is not going to work. Um, and that's often the case because you, you might be co-founding with some U.S. people or you might be receiving so much VC funding that you're not going to have at least 50% ownership. Um, so that's an important restriction. Um, it's, it's available to people in managerial, executive, or specialized positions. So you, if you're running the business as an executive or manager, you can qualify. Um, if you're an engineer or sort of a highly specialized position at the company, you can also uh, 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 qualify. So it's not only the investors that can, can, can use the E2. You know, let's say you start a company and you do, an e, you know, you do you, your own E2 to run the company, and then you want to hire someone from, let's say it's, uh, you know, um, uh, Germany, and you decide you want to hire some guy that you know is a great engineer. He's not going to own any of the company. He's not going to manage it, but he's a great engineer. You can hire that person pursuant to the E2 classification, and it's a lot less, it's going to ultimately be less expensive and less restrictive than the H1B. Um, it's also based on a substantial investment in the United States. So, you know, let's say you come here, you're starting a company, you're going to own 50% or maybe more, but all the, all the cash is coming from a VC in the United States. That's going to be a problem. You have to show that there's a substantial amount of money coming from the, uh, the investors of the treaty country. And it doesn't necessarily have to be money. It can be equipment. Theoretically, it could be intellectual property, but that's very, very difficult because you have to uh, provide an you know, objective valuation of it. Um, some of the benefits, it allows, us, it allows spouse work authorization. So if you're coming on an E2, your husband or wife can... Um, can work anywhere he or she wants while you're on the E2. Um, very few employer restrictions. Does not require, and this is, this is probably one of the best benefits, does not require a petition with the USCIS ahead of time. So, again, one of the issues with the H-1B and other petition-based uh, work-authorized classifications is we have to deal with the Immigration Service, and they tend to be a little less open-minded, frankly. Um, the, the consular service is what adjudicates most E2 um, applications. And they, their training is more to facilitate international trade and, you know, help uh, uh, realize the, the goal of these treaties, which is to allow people from uh, the U.S. to go to that country and people from that country to come here to, to uh, invest. Um, so the E2, uh, I think, is, is much more, uh, uh, the, the adjudication of the E2 is much more reasonable. Um, Again, the downside, substantial investment in the U.S., so representative office or sales office don't qualify. Um, processing generally takes much longer than other classifications, depending on the country. Um, in Canada, they can take several months. In uh, you know, Chile, it might only take a couple weeks. Does, does no 
No, you need to, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of documentation that you have to show with the E2, much more so than even the H-1B. So what does no petition It just means that you don't have to file a petition with the Immigration Service prior to getting classification. You apply directly at the consulate or embassy abroad. Uh, what's the substantial investment? <laughs> uh, substantial investment de depends on the nature of the enterprise. So if you're starting a hot dog stand, the substantial investment is going to be a lot less than a factory. And, and the high case the, the min my rule of thumb, the absolute minimum is $100,000. Um, we won't, there's nothing in the regulations that says, but we won't do an E2 unless there's $100,000. And that's, you know, if someone says that they're going to open a, um, you know, a semiconductor fab and they say their investment's $100,000, obviously that's not going to work. Um, it just really depends on the enterprise. And, and, you know, when doing the E2, we need a business plan. It all has to make sense in terms of the business plan. You know, if you have this amount of investment, is that going to work for what you're planning on doing? So I'm going to just sort of try and go through this. Uh, the B1 visitor status, again, does not allow work authorization, but is a status that you can use to explore starting a business and actually start a business. So you can come on a B1 business visitor or the visa waiver if you qualify, if you're from a visa waiver country, and use that to you know, talk to potential investors, look for office space, uh, even hire people. But once the business is up and running, you need to switch to L1 or E2 status um, if, you, if, if the company's qualified. And, and up and running means having revenue? Yeah, I mean, basically when you actually start receiving money from clients. Um, or I would say even before that, getting paid, if you're, you know, definitely if you're getting paid by the company here, you definitely need to be in work authorized status. Um, but even if you're not getting paid and the company's starting to generate revenue, you really should be in work authorized status. There's nothing that really delineates that in the statute of the regulations, but. And how long does this last? The, uh, the B-1? Depends on, if you come in a visa waiver, so if you're from a visa waiver country, it's uh, 90 days at a time. Um, and then you have to leave, and then you can come back. Um, if, you're, if you actually apply for a B-1 visa, it will only be granted for up to six months at a time. And oftentimes, they'll grant it for much less, depending on what your purposes are. So if you say, I'm, I'm going to a, a seminar in Las Vegas um, for you know, two weeks, then they're only going to grant it for two weeks, possibly. So it really just depends. Well, again, we go back to the, the, you know, some of the initial concepts here. The, the visa, the expiration date on the visa stamp is irrelevant once you enter the country. What's relevant is the I-94. Um, that determines how long you, you can stay. So you have a B-1 visa stamp that's valid for 10 years, but your I-94, you, but you didn't enter on a B-1, right? Oh, whew, good. Um, but, yeah, if you were to enter, you don't want to be going to school on a B-1. Um, uh, the, the, you know, when you come in on the B-1, they'll grant it for usually six months. Not allowed to receive salary or compensation from U.S. source. Offer your services for hire. So that's another thing that comes up. You know, you start a company and you're starting to, you know, do stuff for other companies and you really can't do that. Um, or other activities involving local employment. Okay. Um, just real briefly, TNs. If you're Canadian, that's a classification that might work. It's, it, it allows you to skip the immigration service. Uh, downsides with that. Very limited class, occupational classifications. There's no executive or uh, you know, regular management type of position under the TN regulations. It's for very specific positions like engineer, accountant, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. So oftentimes it doesn't really work for people like you that are starting up a company, even if you are Canadian or Mexican. 
Um, H1B1, again, we touched on this. It's very much like the H1B, but it's set, there's a set-aside for Chile and Singapore. Um, the advantages of it, if you qualify, um, are that, first of all, it doesn't go through the USCS, apply directly at the consular embassy. Filing fees are much, much less expensive. E3, again, that's very, that, that is also very much like the H1B in terms of what the requirements are, but it's, non, it's not petition-based. If you're Australian, you can apply directly at the consulate or embassy in Australia. There's a separate quota. It's not taken out of the regular H-1B cap of 10,000. Um, the next classification we'll talk about, and, and I'm going to keep this brief as well because I don't think it's uh, applicable to too many of you, is the L-1B multinational, L-1A and L-1B multinational uh, manager. Let's say you have a company that you started or um, you, know, you work for abroad, and you've worked there for at least a year. And when you graduate from Stanford um, after your you know, two-year program, you want to go back and start a company here in the United States with that company, a subsidiary, essentially. Um, the L1 uh, classification, theoretically, should allow you to do that. If you've worked at a company abroad for one year in the last three years, of course, it would be cutting it very tight because you're going to school for two years, uh, you can work for a subsidiary parent or affiliate of that foreign company in L1 status. Um, so, you know, just to go back to that example, you, you have a company of maybe 10 people in uh, Belgium and, uh, you know, you're, you're coming here for your MBA. When you graduate, you're going to start up a subsidiary of that company in Belgium, here in Palo Alto, um, that makes chocolate or something. Um, so that, that should seem like a good option. The problem is, is that even more so than the H-1B, the USCIS hates L1s for small companies. The chances of a denial for a small company and L1 are extremely high. Um, so we almost never do this for startups. Um, we do it where there's no other option or, or we know that we have a fallback. So well, let's, give it a, let's give it a shot. If it doesn't work, because there's some advantages to the L1 if you get it compared to the E2. If it doesn't work, we'll do an, a, we'll do an E2. That might be a situation where we do the L1. Um, but it's, uh, and I just mentioned it so you might hear about it and say, well, why don't we do that if you have that, uh, uh, that situation? It's just, it's very, very difficult. You can't, unless it's related, unless it meets those qualifications. So if you're working for, um, uh, let's say, a subsidiary of the, the Belgian chocolate company here, and then you want to switch and work at Google, it's not going to work because there's no relationship between Google and the Belgian company. <clears throat> okay. Um, just going to talk a little bit more about the cap gap issue. Um, and that is the situation where all of you might find yourself in, where you have your one year of OPT and then you need to switch to H1B. Because of the limited filing season for H1Bs, oftentimes what happens is, is that when your OPT expires, there's no H1Bs left. Um, right now we're looking at H1Bs for fiscal year 2011 uh, being reached in the next couple weeks, maybe, maybe a month or so. Um, so if, you're, uh, if you don't already have an H-1B approved and you have your OPT, once your OPT expires, then you might be in a bad situation, um, depending on uh, you know, where, when it expires. Uh, the regulations now allow for uh, what are called cap-gap provisions. Um, this means that if you, if, you're, if you file an H-1B for the next fiscal year, so that would be fiscal year 2012, um, before your OPT expires, 
then your OPT work authorization will be extended till the beginning of the next fiscal year. So where this might come into play is let's say in, you know, let's say you, you're graduating in uh, uh, the fall of, excuse me, the spring of this year. Your OPT is going to take you till June of 2012. That, it's 12 months, so it'll take you, you know, from the time you graduate till, till June 2012. You file an H-1B, the soonest that you're likely going to be able to file an H-1B is April 1st, 2012, for the next fiscal year. The problem is that you're, you're, before that fiscal year starts on October 1st, your OPT will have expired. Um, this cap gap provision means that you can extend your H-1B until, it, until, uh, until the beginning of the fiscal year. Does that sort of make sense, or is that just as clear as mud? All right, good. Yeah, that applies to you. The other thing, the STEM extension, which is mentioned here, wouldn't apply to an MBA student. If you're graduating in a STEM field, science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, you can actually extend your OPT for 17 months, um, so long as the employer that you're working for is enrolled in E-Verify, which I won't go into. Um, so, and that's regardless of whether an H-1B is filed. Um, the cap gap thing, which is pl applicable to you, only applies if you file an H-1B um, within the you know, requisite time period. So that's just a very you know, short uh, summary of that. Um, but uh, if you have questions about it, feel free to, to contact me. <clears throat> green cards. Again, I don't think this is too relevant to you now because, you know, right now you're probably just thinking about getting a, getting a work visa once you graduate. But just to, just to uh, give a broad overview of some of the, what might be relevant um, uh, classifications and considerations, um, one issue for startups is financial resources. When you, whenever you do uh, an employer-sponsored green card case, you have to be able to show the company's ability to pay the salary. Um, so if you're, if you're saying that you're going to make $100,000, they're going to want to see proof that you can do that with either tax returns, financial statements, or payroll records. And obviously that's difficult for startups. Um, immigrant intent, that might come into play. Some people want to start their green card process with a startup or as a, you know, some other classification while they're in F1 OPT status. That's difficult because the F1 OPT is a strict non-immigrant status. Um, and you could face problems traveling and re-entering the country if you're starting the green card process. Before embarking on the green card process, you should talk to a tax advisor. Um, there are implications in terms of taxes. And now just real briefly, means of sponsorship. There's, there's a, uh, most people who are employer-sponsored um, as green card holders do so through PERM labor certification. And that's a process where the employer tests the U.S. labor market to determine whether there's any qualified uh, U.S. workers who want the job. And, of course, the intention here is to make sure that no U.S. workers are being displaced to protect U.S. workers. Um, what that means for startups is that it's difficult because as a startup, if you're a founder or co-founder, you're probably going to have some ownership interest in the company. And if you have an ownership interest in the company and it's what's considered a closely held company, um, which a lot of startups are, the Department of Labor is going to want you to disclose that when you file the PERM application. And it's going to be very, very difficult to get that approved. Um, so that's, that's a very important consideration because the other means of green card sponsorship are very difficult. Um, when the company gets to a certain level and it gets diluted with venture capital, um, we might be at the point where we can say, well, it's not closely held anymore. Um, but while it's closely held, it, it's, it's, I, I, don't even, I wouldn't even want to file a PERM application for someone that owns 5% or so of the company. <clears throat> uh, 
EB1 alien extraordinary ability, this is very similar to the O1, except the standard of review is much higher. So this is for people that are at the very top of their field. Uh, this might be, you know, um, an executive who's done well and made lots of money um, with previous companies. It's also done for actors and performers and musicians and, 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 and other things. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's a hard standard to meet, um, particularly in a, the business field. Um, much easier for someone who's got, you know, a PhD or they've, uh, they, they have a Nobel Prize or something like that. If you have a Nobel Prize, then, you know, by all means, let me know. Um, multinational managers and executives, this is very similar to the L1, the L1 classification that we just briefly touched on. So if you have a company abroad that, you know, you're, you're coming here and you're at, when you graduate and you're going to open a subsidiary, you're going to join a subsidiary, um, you, and you're going to work in a managerial capacity or an executive capacity at that company in the U.S., and you served in a managerial executive capacity at the company abroad, then you should qualify as a multinational manager executive. Um, but, again, for small companies, that's, that's difficult. It's difficult to show that because you might, if you only have four or five employees and you're saying that you're the CEO, the immigration service is going to say the CEO of what? Um, you know, they, they want to see big companies with lots of employees. And finally, uh, the EB-5 investor visa. And you might have heard of this, but uh, this is a, a, a green card visa classification that allows for people to get a green card if they're investing a uh, million dollars, and in some cases half a million dollars, depending on if it's in a targeted economic area, um, to start a business that creates at least 10 jobs. And there's a two-year conditional residency requirement. So what you have to do is you have to take the money, start a business, you know, start you know, buying stuff and get space and all that. Um, and then you file a petition saying, oh, yeah, here's my business. Here's my business plan. I put in the money. It's legal. I got it from legal means. Um, and uh, then they give you a two-year conditional green card. And at the end of that two years, you have to uh, show that you, in fact, did or are likely going to create the 10 jobs that you're required to um, and that the business is still running. Now, important aspect of this, it has to be your money. You can't, you know, use someone else's money. You can't use VC funding. It has to be your own money. And they're going to trace it. They're going to go back five years to make sure that that's your money and you got it from a legal means. Sure. If you get a green card from, let's say, Google, do we then start our own company without going through any of stuff? Yes. Yes. If you get your green card through Google, then you can, then you're a permanent resident. You can do whatever you want. Or if you get your green card through marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it depends on your background. Um, right now, it's going very quickly uh, through PERM labor certification. It, it also depends off if the PERM is audited. Some cases are audited. In that case, it takes much longer. Uh, it depends on, your, it depends on your, your academic background. It depends on your nationality, or actually, not your nationality, excuse me, the, the country that you're born in. Um, and in some cases, it might depend on the country your wife is born in um, or your husband. Uh, so there's a lot of factors, but it, let's just to give you an example, someone that's working for Google or you know some other company, established company, um, they have a master's degree. They're in a position that requires a master's degree, and they're born in Canada. And Google starts the perm process. Um, it might only take three or four months to get the, the the perm taken care of based on current processing times, and then the rest of the process maybe six or nine months. So you can, it, the the best case scenario is is a green card in about a year. Worst case scenario, uh, you're born in India, um, you're in a position that only requires a bachelor's degree, um, that might be eight or nine years. 
usually most companies, most of my clients, they wait a year. They want to see you working for a year. Um, startups might have more flexibility. They want to attract the best talent. They'll say, we'll do it right away for you. But most companies, they, they have a one-year policy. Okay, and I know we're out of time, but i just just going to briefly mention this, and then we can move to the other room. The EB-6 green card category, that was a proposed law. It was started last year. You might have heard about it. Um, this would allow people like you to get a green card um, by raising VC funding. So unlike the EB-5, which requires it to be your own money, the EB-6 would allow you to raise VC funding and get a green card that way. Um, well, the, the law didn't go anywhere. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, uh, uh, it, 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 unfortunately it, it failed and, and Congress didn't pass it. But it's possible that it'll be reintroduced in the new session of Congress and, and, and it might go somewhere. Um, well, you know, that's. I think that that's a question maybe we should wait because that, that requires more questions and, you know, because uh, it really depends. I can't just say, oh, you know, a million dollars. Because it also depends on what you're doing, people you're hiring, if you have office space, and uh, et cetera, how much you're going to own, that kind of thing. All right. We're going to move over to the CES if you have any specific questions. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.